Hi, I'm Eric Zontrub. I'm the chair of the board of directors of Critical Elements Lithium Corporation, ticker CRE on the TSX Venture Exchange. We intend to, to develop the high purity rose lithium tantalum mine and concentrator in the James Bay region of Quebec. Good to see you, Eric. Thanks for, thanks for joining us for this little uh, series that we're doing for Beginner's Guide to Lithium. Um, but, but and we, we, sorry, what we're going to do is we're going to sort of break down and simplify for a new audience, a little Gen Z group uh, of investors joining us from the world of tech, who perhaps don't know as much as some of the more um, experienced or um, in investors in mining. And we're going to hopefully help them make lithium just a little bit more accessible um, by um, dint of understanding that the macro supply demand stories. But first, we're going to kick off with a little bit about you. We, we, we spoke in January. Um, it was all about Paramounts. It was all about uh, uh, the timelines to be able to get the permits that you need to move things forward. You have raised a little bit of money since we last spoke, but give us a quick update. Yes, we put out a news release um, on February 17th that gave a, a, a bit of an update on what's happening with the ROSE project. First of all, we have hired the engineering firms that we need to do the front-end engineering design that moves forward to phase one of the ROSE project in northern Quebec. Phase one is the mine and concentrator. Uh, the engineering firms are Boumigem, which is a well-known Quebec engineering firm that's designed and built numerous projects around the world. WSP is doing the infrastructure work, and Golder, very, very highly regarded group, is doing the tailings, uh, looking at that for us. So this comes on the end of the November 2017 feasibility study for phase one. And so with that feed, with that front-end engineering design work, we can swing right into incorporating new data to provide an updated feasibility study. That updated feasibility study will revisit CapEx, operating costs, and pricing of spodumene concentrate. These are our key inputs. And if you look at, for example, in the, in the 2017 feasibility study, a 20% increase in capital cost translates to an 8% decrease in the NPV of the project after tax. Whereas a 20% increase in pricing, and we used $750 per ton for 5% concentrate, um, a 20% increase corresponds to a 41% increase in that NPV. So you can see the project is not very leveraged to CapEx, but it's highly leveraged to metal prices. Right now, we've seen a massive increase in lithium spodumene uh, concentrate pricing. Uh, we've seen uh, prices as high as $25, $2,800 per ton on a spot basis. That's not exactly reflective of contract prices that one sees. And feasibility studies that are coming out very recently range in price from about $1,000 per ton to about $1,300 per ton. So you can expect pricing in that sort of a range. So you're, you're at the sort of the, the, the last few years, you're in the home straight. As it were, but I'll keep coming back to the fact that you know I think the team is a good team. The asset is a big asset. The numbers look good, but you need and people expect to see you get these these permits. Um, that's the kind of long pole in the tent. So, is there any update on that? Sure. Um, as as followers of the company, investors in the company know, we received our federal permits in August 2021. Uh, the Quebec permitting process is a parallel process. 
that's done independently. Uh, the Quebec process has no legislated timeline. And so what one normally sees is four or five rounds of questions and answers as the, the, the committee members meet and pose questions uh, to the company to respond to. It's normal to have four or five rounds. We have now completed five rounds. As we noted in our recent news release, We've had no further questions, and so we are very confident uh, that over the next few weeks that we will conclude this process in a positive way. Right, and what does that? What does that? Um, what does, and no promises together, but what does that? Um, what does that um, release for you? I'm, I'm imagining because you, you, you you've talked in the past about strategic partners. You've obviously got to get this thing funded. Uh, so just tell us about what the what the roadmap looks like once you get that permit. Um, first of all, let's talk a little bit about valuation. Right now, the stock, well, pre the Ukraine invasion, the stock was trading at around 0.3 times NAV. Um, and that's relative to the net asset value as put out in the 2017 feasibility study. That's a significant discount to if you look at the average for coverage at Canaccord Genuity and their global coverage of lithium stocks. The average was around 0 0.7, 0.72 times NAV. So that's a significant discount just on phase one. So that's the mine and concentrator. And to be conservative, we have always said, let's build the mine and concentrator first. And then a second phase could be a conversion plant in Quebec that takes the concentrate and gives us the lithium hydroxide that battery manufacturers are looking at. So that too is an engineering study that is expected in the near term. That engineering study will introduce new economics and have an impact on where the stock is trading. So a re-rating based on that. Coming back to permitting, permitting is an essential milestone for us. And we believe that there is a potential re-rating, a significant one, attached to receiving that Quebec permit. And so what does that mean for financing and strategic investment? And as we've said in our previous visits with you, Matt, uh, we require investment in parallel with offtake. And so rather than signing an MOU, and we've discussed MOUs in the past with a, an unmentionable party, we are looking to align the interest of the offtaker with the interests of the investor. And so we want to see a strategic investor in the company coming in first, and that will then begin the, the dominoes cascading for other parts of the financing. We're looking for something on the order of 425 million Canadian. That's a number that will be updated in the updated feasibility study, but as an as a, as a estimate at this point in time, we look to see that um, come from different places, if you strategic equity investment from the street, uh, private sources of, of uh, uh, debt funding. And then, of course, Quebec Inc. has already stated its extreme support for the battery material space, setting aside $1.9 billion Canadian for that. So we're, we're quite excited about all the catalysts that are coming here over the next uh, short while. Okay. And... and one more question. I promise for the for the, the, the kind of uh, new to mining people, the the, the the beginner's guide bit coming up shortly. Just stick with us just a few more minutes because you said something that interests me. There, you mentioned um, 
the Ukraine-Russian situation. So you, you referenced, obviously, the multiples that you're getting and versus you know the re-rate that you think you'll, you'll possibly get if things, things move forward. What effect does something like Russia and Ukraine, uh, the, the, the conflict there, do for the markets? What does it do for um, the, com- the commodity sector? What does it do specifically for you know your commodity um, and, and then maybe the impact on, on your company? How, how do you think that, that trickle down or those ripples will affect you? Well, let, let me start with the tail end of your line of questioning there. What does it do for our company? Um, obviously, like the like all companies in the space, we're seeing the markets trading off today. This is the, the invasion is less than twelve hours old, uh, so risk is off the table, and so you're you're looking at most equities being off dramatically today. Uh, we were sitting in in November looking at the the landscape of risk, and the board decided that we didn't have enough capital. We were concerned and we literally said we were concerned about the potential for another another variant of COVID-19 and we were concerned about war in Ukraine. So tragically, both those things have occurred. We're very pleased that we were able to, to raise $30 million Canadian and uh, we are, I wouldn't say we're bulletproof, but we are in a good position to go through the next year or two come what may. And that's that's essential when you look at all the companies in the space that they have capital and they're not stuck on fumes having to raise in a negative environment like this. But but but, but just uh, with to, regards, sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt you because that's important. Um, you raised at one seventy five, right? So you, the people who kind of came in, came in at that price point, I don't know what the makeup was in terms of institutional retail or or, or, or otherwise. Um, what's your message to them? Because we're sitting at one twenty five uh, today. Is that just a factor of Russia, Ukraine? Is it just a factor of more broadly its risk off at the moment? I think the stock settled into sort of the 130, 140 range uh, as post the financing. Obviously, we had people playing the the, the unit, uh, selling common and running with the half warrant. It's unfortunate, but that's that's unfortunately the way these deals work uh, in, in this environment. Um, I'm a shareholder myself, so I'm, I'm, I'd much rather see the stock at $1.90 than $1.30, but there it is. The recent drop it, that takes it into the 120s on the Ukraine situation is is very consistent with what everybody else is doing in the space right now. So it's, it's tragic, but we're going to have to see how this Ukrainian situation plays out. How long it takes and what the consequences are depends on which echo chamber you're listening to, uh, but uh, but certainly it's going to be messy for a while. In the meantime, we're just going to continue to move forward. We hope to have the permit near term. We hope to have uh, the conclusion of discussions that have gone for a long time on strategic investment. We're going to build an owner's team. We're going to conduct exploration. There are a lot of positive catalysts that are coming in the stock whether the market is receptive to them or not, we'll see. That's that's a macro situation. Okay, and talking macro situations, now might be the time just to refresh our uh, m- memory of what the n- what the numbers, supply demand numbers are out there to introduce some of the concepts around the thesis for people new to investing in mining uh, and lithium specifically uh, today. Um, what? Should we, should we start with that? Should we start with um, the demand side first? Would that be a good place? Certainly. Okay. Certainly. Now, we um, said that we might share a screen. Indeed. So 
Let us do that because so, give us some great talking points. So the key to lithium is understanding where's demand coming from. So if you look at the, um, the slide here, you can see the, um, the plug-in hybrids in blue and the green is the battery electric vehicles. So combined, we're looking at approximately 6.4 million units globally so, uh, sold uh, to, uh, to uh, the, the consumer. And you can see that this is almost double of what we saw in 2020. So whether you're talking about consumers loving the idea of electric vehicles or we're looking at government incentives in order to reduce uh, the carbon footprint on, on transportation, on, on mobility, uh, regardless, we're looking at a massive growth in EV sales. And the result is that the OEMs, the, 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 batter, the car manufacturers, is that they're massively expanding their lines, their brands of, uh, of vehicles that are, that are going out to the consumer to the point where they're investing tens of billions of dollars in order to switch over their plants. And the thing that people don't talk about is that the economics for a car manufacturer are so much better fewer moving parts, fewer uh, uh, workers in the plant, much lower warranty costs. And so there's a real incentive for the OEMs to go in this direction. So with this massive growth in, in uh, demand for lithium, you have to have a comparable growth in, in, in cell manufacturing. So you're seeing battery uh, gigafactories popping up all over the world. Uh, more so in, in Asia than we've seen in Europe and North America, but Europe in particular is working on, on investing heavily in that space and North America behind it. Um, so consequently, that lithium demand is rising to go into these new batteries, to go into these new cars. And it's hard because there's this impression that you can snap your fingers and have a brand new lithium mine in three or four years because after all, it only takes two or three years to, to convert um, an, a, a, a manufacturing line and build a, a battery plant, but it's just not the case. It takes years, years to build a mine. First of all, discover it. Secondly, build the mine, build the processing plant if you're talking about a direct lithium extraction plant. And then it takes 18 to 24 months to qualify that lithium for use in the battery. These, this is not copper or gold. It's, this is a very finicky specialty chemical process and industry. And so if you look at it, you come back and down at the bottom left, you can see pricing. This is the benchmark with the price index that reflects realized prices happening in the spot market. And you can see that since the low in September 2020, that lithium pricing is up as much as 400%, and it's actually grown since that. So there's a massive impact, not just in the demand, but the rebuilding of inventories that have to go into these plants. Do you think then, that, sorry, this is a, a more holistic com conversation, and, and we, you know, I'm very conscious that we should make it um, you know, specifically about lithium where, where we can, but... The, you're indicating the key driver for lithium is the electric vehicle revolution. You know the fact that the numbers are growing quicker than anyone had forecast. Um, that there are that it's not just on in terms of the um, 
the OEMs, the, the automotive manufacturers, but also the miners take a long time to actually get to the point where they can throw something out, put something out at the other end, right? So, and, and in many ways, the automotive manufacturers seem to be reliant on being able, or have been up until now, reliant on being able to buy the commodities at, in the spot market, you know, or, or you know, in the market. With the kind of demands heading the way they are, do you think that it's going to move more towards a, a, a contract situation? They are going to want to nail down their supply chain for long periods of time, well ahead of time. Is that the way this is going? Well, by far, by far, the majority of, of lithium units are transacted on a contract basis rather than a spot basis. And some of the producers have started sort of an auction process. If you look at Pilbara, for example, they've done a great job and they're, they're capturing some of their, their pricing on that basis at a much higher level. Uh, but the reality is that, that the OEMs, the battery manufacturers, need to start locking in um, uh, offtake. And so we're, we're seeing a really intense battle to try and grab that offtake. Um, it's, it's not so hard to, to do an MOU, as we've discussed in the past. MOUs might not be worth the paper they're written on, but it is an element of the business. Um, the OEMs in Europe and North America, one could argue, have been a bit slower off the, the starting line. Um, OEMs in, in Asia have been very aggressive in, in trying to lock down that offtake. Some of them are, some of these OEMs are still oblivious and uh, aren't quite aggressive enough. Uh, what's interesting is the reliance that we're seeing, largely because of, I wouldn't call it greenwashing, but there's a, a, an honest desire to reduce carbon footprint, to reduce water use, to reduce impact on communities. And so there, there are these beautiful, elegant ideas that have, have come forth. Uh, recycling, obviously, we need to see a lot of lithium in the system, a lot of batteries manufactured before recycling becomes commercially impactful. But there are other things like direct lithium extraction, for example, from geothermal brines, from well field brines. These are beautiful solutions. But again, it's going to take a while, a lot longer than people think to see these things actually at a commercial level. So consequently, there's an important gap there that where conventional mine and brine is going to have to fill in the gap uh, until we get those units that we desperately need. Uh, from those other technologies. So that, that, that graph looks terrifying. Um, if you are an OEM or a battery manufacturer, uh, because you know what's the other side of the coin, which is the supply side, which is there are a lot of companies claiming the ability to get into production. There are a lot of uh, companies um, who don't have the money to advance their, their projects yet. Um, but are hoping if the prices reach a certain level that they might be able to get that money. Um, there are also lots of people out there with assets which just aren't capable of getting into production, with teams not capable of getting it into production. So what people are claiming in the market versus the reality of how many of those will successfully get into production, of whether it be spodumene or a hydroxide, is, is problematic. I would, you know. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, first of all, what's your view on the on the on the supply chain as it as it sits at the moment? Well, I'm I'm going to agree with you, and I'm I'm going to suggest to you that that 
this sort of a checklist approach is something that I've done in the past as a mining analyst for, for literally decades, scary thought. Uh, but to me, it's always comes down to the four P's, the people, the place, the project and price, in other words, valuation. And you need to have as many of these boxes ticked to consider it as a, as a viable investment and people. I mean, we, we, as a geologist myself, I love it when the geology, geological team comes in with a new discovery and says, yep, we're going to build a lithium mine. Uh, but there is no experience from the lithium industry on that board or in that management. In terms of place, you want to be in a top-tier mining jurisdiction. If you're an OEM building a diverse supply chain, you want to have as much as possible of your supply coming from top-tier jurisdictions. Uh, where there are Indigenous peoples, you need to have formalized relationships with, with the Indigenous peoples. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And then you also have to have infrastructure. So if you're hundreds of kilometers away from the nearest dirt road or hundreds of kilometers away from the nearest port without rail in between, it's a big ask to see those, those uh, lithium units make it to the market in a, in a reasonable amount of time terms of the project, obviously, the better the project, the better it is for the investment. And so you want to have attractive metallurgy, you want to have size, um, the environmental attributes are important, and uh, permitting. Permitting is essential. You want to be in a top jurisdiction where permitting is doable and where you're not going to get your permits taken away. Look at what's happened to Rio Tinto in Serbia. Um, nationalization potentially in Chile, nationalization in in Mexico being threatened. You want to be in a top-tier jurisdiction. And then finally, in terms of valuation, there are some people that are better promoters than others, and it's important to be able to do good promotion. Don't get me wrong. But if you're promoting and telling people you're going to be in production in X months, and uh, that's not realistic, that's not good for the company, it's not good for your investment, it's not good for our industry. This is That's a, that's a great, the, the four piece, nice, nice checklist there. And uh, is that you ranking yourself there? I'm trying to work out what the... <laughs> um, the ex once an analyst, always an analyst. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's it's. I think that those those are good points, Frank. And for beginners looking at this, that I think the more um, experienced may you know recognize a lot of the the, the comments that you've you've made there. Um, and there is a subtle difference between companies claiming they have these things and them actually having these things. And that, I think that is also one of the difficulties. Um, for people new to the mining investment, uh, is working out who, who to believe. And I guess the person telling you needs as much diligence done on them as uh, what they're saying. So I think that that would add that to the mix uh, completely. So, so right. So that's that's the kind of checklist on on the supply side. So let's let's talk about um, numbers then. You, is there any sort of sense of, as to what what the market? We know what the market needs in, in terms of demand. There are lots of um, different technologies. We've got the kind of conventional brines that people may uh, understand. We've got hard rock, which people may understand. And you've referenced direct lithium extraction in a couple of places, plus clay. So there's some more slightly more technical, um, uh, you know, ways to extract lithium. So, in fact, what are you, you going to share with us here? This is this looks interesting. This is the. Supply and demand outlook from my old shop, Canaccord Genuity. Reg Spencer, I'd say, is 
one of the leading analysts in the in the space. So I've I've blatantly stolen this from August 2021. I believe there's a, a, a recent update to this model, but this is a model from August 2021 and is therefore more conservative even um, than than what's happened to the market recently. But if we're looking at this, um, can see that uh, I've highlighted we're looking at 1,044 uh, kilotons or 1 million tons of lithium carbonate equivalent total demand in 2025, and that rises to 2.6 million tons in 2030. I'm, I'm seeing numbers today that are closer to a 3 million ton estimate demand for uh, 2030. So at the very bottom, you can see the size of the, surf the surplus or the deficit. The deficit is a negative number. And you can see that blue chart at the bottom, how total supply in around 2026, just the massive gap that's growing there as much as 45% in this model. I know UBS, for example, published a, a supply gap of 50% by 2030. And that's going to require tens of billions of dollars invested in new production regardless of whether it's mine, brine, or new technology, you need those new units in order to meet the demand that is expected from, elect from electric vehicles. We haven't really talked about some of the other demands, uh, but there are batteries associated with, um, with uh, grids, grid stabilization. So in other words, if you have solar and wind generating electricity on a variable basis, you can store that energy in a, in a, a grid uh, battery facility. And there's significant lithium demand coming from that source as well. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's a very interesting area in terms of, um, we, we talked about different technologies emerging there, but lithium still has a place to pay a play there uh, for, for, for sure. Um, Right. So, so, so what we're, what we're seeing is that there's a big delta between what we are currently know can be in production and what we know or we believe the demand will be. So there, therefore, what are we, what's going to happen? Is it, does this mean that projects that are currently sub-economic will more readily or more, more readily find money because they're looking at this kind of hockey stick? Um, d demand um, graph of yours, it suggests that as, as a banker, ex-banker, you're an ex-analyst, um, you would say, well, I feel a little bit more comfortable about investing in these projects, which at, at the current prices don't work because I know what's coming down the line. Or is that still just too much risk for the financiers of these big projects? Because they're big numbers. Well, I think what, what we're all waiting for is for the OEMs and the battery manufacturers to recognize this gap on the horizon and free up some capital. Um, the OEMs are relying on capital markets to provide funds to put these new projects into production. And I'm, I'm not going to talk about the specifics of critical elements, but as a general comment, I would suggest that, that Asian parties are uh, looking closer at that horizon recognizing the opportunity for them. And so there's a greater chance that you're going to see investment from that quarter coming into projects globally. We've already seen, for example, neolithium taken out uh, by a Chinese entity. Uh, we're going to see uh, more competition like we've seen in the past for millennial. Uh, and so 
more M&A, expect more M&A, expect more investments from the uh, from that quarter. And uh, let's hope that, that, that North American and European end users begin to realize that more and more of their lithium units that they need for their batteries are going to come via that via Asia, um, then perhaps they'd like if they don't step up themselves. Right, you're right. We, we, we've, seen, we've seen a few, um, we've seen people like Gangfeng step in and uh, secure their uh, supply for the future. Um, and we'll, we, I agree with you, we'll probably see a bit, a bit more of that. If you're everyday investor, what's the opportunity? Here, do is it a case of we need all of the above, so all of the above will work, or are there some more likely to succeed than others? And if so, you've kind of given us a checklist, but is there anything else that we should be cognizant of before we place our bets, as it were? Well, you and I have seen a few cycles, and as we know, the first mover is always the producer. Not implying you're old, I'm just saying. Um, the first mover is always the producer, and then we come down the food chain or up the food chain, depending on what direction you're looking, where you get the, the smaller producers and then you get the developers that are close to production. Uh, then you see the explorers kick up. The leverage is always in, 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 the, in the, the investment, the speculation, probably better put, that is the furthest from cash flow. And so if you're, if you're an investor or a speculator and that's really where your head is at, then go for the thing that's the furthest out of the money because it's going to move the furthest. It also has the highest risk associated with it. And as an analyst, I didn't play that game. For me, it was always about quality. Who's got the best people? Who's got the best project in the best place? And can I get it cheaply? Are there some catalysts coming up that will cause a re-rating? And that's always been my my gain as an analyst and my preferred route for investment. Besides, if the commodity doesn't provide a tailwind, if you're looking at a company that's going through a re-rating, a de-risking process, it's going to move. It won't move as far without the tailwind from the commodity, but it is still going to give you a great return. And if you consistently find stories like that, you're going to have a, a very attractive portfolio. Right. So same rules apply for lithium as they do elsewhere. The further away they are from some kind of monetization event, high, high leverage, high returns, if it works, but chance of success much lower. Near, nearer production, obviously, lower, type, lower leverage, lower type returns, but more certainty of returns. And that may make, depending on your risk profile, make you feel more comfortable. Or you go somewhere in the middle where it's being de-risked to some extent, but you feel that it will move forward to a production process. So it's, 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 it's similar. There are, no, there are no kind of exceptions or kind of peculiarities or vagaries for the lithium market. It's fairly conventional in that sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that checklist, I think, is a useful tool for you as an investor. Make sure that all the, the P's are there. Get your P's in line. Well, like, Indeed. <laughs> Actually, there was a great, um, a great marketer called Philip Kotler. He wrote a book many, many years ago, and he he talked about he had his four Ps as well, uh, which I think people have extended onto. There must be about nine Ps. So we're going to have to we have to see if we can add a few more Ps to your list. Um, uh, as ever, really informative. I appreciate your your experience and knowledge coming to bear in terms of helping us helping beginners understand the world of lithium as it stands today in terms of supply and demand, that the, the macro picture. I hope people have been able to 
well, I hope they feel uh, uh, if they can, as they can access uh, this space and feel comfortable in this space enough to maybe ask a few more questions about perhaps where they can uh, invest, what they should be investing in. So appreciate your time today. Uh, we'll speak to you soon. Always a pleasure. Thank you.